Welcome to Tech Talks, a podcast hosted by the Rotman Commerce Fintech Association about all things business, finance, and technology. Let's dive into today's episode. Christopher and Jennifer, uh, and this is the Anti-Money Laundering and Risk Management Tech Talk, where we investigate how uh, this type of financial crime is fought, how COVID-19 has changed trends in uh, money laundering and fraud, and what tools and technology we have to use um, in the fight against it. So we're joined, actually, sorry, I'll let you take it, Jenny. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Uh, We're joined by Michael Fox today, who is the Vice President of Risk and Compliance at Coho. Um, Coho is a Canadian firm that specializes in no-fee digital banking and reloadable visa cards. He is here today to discuss fraud and anti-money laundering practices, how Coho may manage said risks, and more broadly, uh, how firms have adapted to uh, mitigate the consequences of these practices amid the pandemic. So, um, yeah, we'll start off really, really broad. Uh, just to kind of set the scene for everyone and obviously we'll get into these uh, specific things a bit deeper later on we just want to touch on a few big ideas first so as an overview in fraud and money laundering for a company what are the main ways that you kind of uh, approach these risks to combat them yeah there you really need to do a a multi-layered approach when you're combating fraud and money laundering a lot of firms do separate those at Coho, they're hand in hand. And that, that starts first with prevention. Uh, when, when people are, are signing up for a, a product, whether, whether it's Coho or any other financial institution, um, you, you want to make sure you have the right detective controls in place to identify um, criminals who are, who are trying to sign up with you. Um, then after they sign up, assuming some of them do get through and it happens, uh, Companies like Coho use a number of detective controls, looking at things like the source of funds for uh, these people, where the money's going, where they're spending, whether there's international activity, and um, also commonalities with with other other rings. Um, if, if you see large clusters of of customers doing the same sort of activity that you know to be money laundering, that's all very telling um so we're and and then from that um we're you know we're continuing to look after that money goes out um you know like like i said where is it going um are there are there mass trends here do we think this is going for um somewhere that's going to be used for foul play or or is it uh, legitimate right all right thank you now we know that with anti-money laundering, and as you've spoken about these trends, a lot of them are uh, the only ways, or some of the only ways to track it is via data. So in what way does uh, data play a role in monitoring anti-money laundering and risk management? And maybe if you could even speak about how uh, machine learning has become a prevalent tool in detecting these unusual uh, client behaviors and these anomalies. Risk in any financial institution should be the most data-intensive part of the business. You really can't have an effective fraud or money laundering uh, program without a heavy data approach. So it's it's pretty much table stakes for um, people that are going to be leading a fraud or money laundering function to have a data background. Um, and that's that's both 
like tools like SQL, but also um, getting into um, Python and, and, and other tools um, like that. Because if, if you're not using data to look at these trends in a scalable way and look at trends across big groups of customers, you're really getting into this inefficient looking at customers one at a time en masse um, for a, a really long time period. And uh, that, that's the kind of thing that adds a lot of operational overhead to the business. Um, I hesitate to use phrases like machine learning at times uh, because it is, it is a buzzword that, that people use. And um, I, I'd say a lot of companies have attempted to do machine learning and um, I, I, I've worked on machine learning. Many of my colleagues in the industry have worked on machine learning, but I'd say to a large extent, what's being used today isn't, isn't really true machine learning. Um, there, there's AI components of it, um, but there, but there, there aren't a lot of successful applications where um, you know the, the machine is learning on its own. Um, we're we're still largely at the stage where you can put in rules, and you know, I mean, it, it can detect patterns based on the rules you put in. Um, but um, there, there's companies that are at the forefront of trying to build that reinforced learning process. But usually, I'm finding when companies are talking about machine learning, they're talking about the former where it's, it's really just like a rules-based approach to, to these kind of things. That said, um, automation is very important in both fraud and AML, and it is going to be even more important going forward. There's still, if, if you look at the big banks in Canada, um, they're employing thousands of people in fraud and AML, and a big portion of those people are looking at events and cases and just, just grinding through them day to day. And so there's, there's a real opportunity for us in the industry to, to get that down. You know, instead of looking at a thousand cases to identify you know, maybe the hundred that are true money laundering cases, getting that down to 500, then 200, then 100 using predictive models, and then also automating the flows to file to entities like FinTrack um, or, or law enforcement. Uh, today there, there can be uh, some repetitive uh, data input that, that you're seeing uh, companies doing for, for either electronic funds, uh, transfer reporting, large cash transactions, um, and, and specifically suspicious transaction reporting. It, it's, it's a very manual process at a lot of institutions still. Right, so then, you know, if, there, if it is as manual of a process as it is, what are some of the issues that you face um, with that with that process? Is that does that represent you know I think the bulk of the difficulties when when tracking it, and that you know you have to go through this, and it's possibly a time consuming process, or is it more on the technical side of things? I think it's both. I, I think the industry is going in the right direction with this, but just hasn't quite caught up with the automation. Um, but, it, but I think it's close. Um, the, some of the higher volume stuff that, that entities are, are filing on or working cases on that, there is some automation today. Uh, for things like suspicious transaction reports where we're trying to catch money laundering, there's still, to some extent, a lot of ask from regulators for detailed write-ups of these things. And um, a lot of companies just haven't figured out how to automate both the write-up, but also the judgment into whether this is a true money laundering case or not. Um, and that's where we, you talk about true machine learning. Uh, 
when that is mastered, that will get there. Um, today at a lot of entities, you'll have your first person who makes a decision on a case, you know, potential money laundering, then maybe even a second review from someone more senior, and then and then a third review, and, and all the way there's a write-up and, and edits that are happening in place. And when, when I talk to people at these big banks, you'll have a fairly senior uh, AML officer filing two suspicious transaction reports in a day, which is um, remarkably inefficient when there's thousands and thousands to, to be filed. Yeah, I kind of have a follow-up question to that. So as you mentioned, you know, each case on an individual basis kind of goes through this write-up and editing process, goes through many people. Um, what portion of those would you say, like, kind of get left behind? Or, or does, like, in, in most cases, does, like, FinTrack or whoever kind of do a good job in handling you know, every single individual case? Well, within financial institutions, I, I, I'd say the majority of cases that are, gener that are generated are left behind. Um, one of the challenges we have with FinTrack is um, they, don't, they don't really tell us. Um, so we've, these, these things get filed with them um, into a central repository. And to their credit, they've done a lot of work on data standardization over the last several years to make sure all institutions are filing it the same way. But there, there, there hasn't been a, a great feedback loop on um, specific cases where if, if you go to the United States, um, the local law enforcement will have access to the reports that are filed with FinCEN. Um, that in, in, in Canada, it's, it, it's a bit more of a black box. So, it, so people don't necessarily know the fruits of, of their labor. Right. So, uh, yeah, so since we've mentioned FinTrack, I can give a brief uh, kind of summary to our listeners. So FinTrack is the Canadian regulatory body for all uh, financial institutions. And so uh, kind of something that I've seen from them is that during COVID-19, uh, you know, FinTrack has sort of a little article on about how the pandemic has created some challenges um, for both money launderers and those trying to prevent them or track them down. So, for example, there's money launderers who may typically rely on high cash flow companies to launder. Um, you know, they may not be as heavily active during this period of time. And also for those trying to catch them, uh, you know, this, this period of time comes with atypical money movements. So, this may affect your like traditional um, anti-money laundering algorithms. Um, and so, you know, there's this kind of challenges on both ends. So I guess the question here is, has there been opportunities that you've seen where money laundering has become easier during this time in the pandemic? And how have your uh, like anti-money laundering practices needed to adapt and adjust to this? Yeah, I'll start with the regulatory approach and what what uh, companies have been doing um, there there was definitely some transition that a lot of companies including us had to deal with uh, for working from home and that that did cause uh, a, a lot of companies to fall a little behind on some of this stuff um, to the point that um, you know fintrack did issue guidance on what you know whether filings could be a little late and and uh, you know had to put had to put a hold on on audits that were happening in offices, obviously because people weren't in offices. Um, I think the industry 
rebounded well and adjusted quickly to that though and um, has, has responded with you know, changing controls around uh, money laundering detection and in particular around the fraud uh, modes. Um, that said, from a behavior side, there have been changes. And in a lot of cases, it's made activity that would have been out of the ordinary um, become more common. Um, and it's also made some stuff that we saw a lot of in the past, not, maybe not at COHO, but at other institutions, um, less common. So for example, um, at, at most spending has, has been online over, over the last six months, after, particularly in those first few, few months when COVID uh, hit. So you saw a lot of people that, you know, maybe didn't have an, a lot of online spend, a lot of international um, type of spend. Suddenly we're doing that. Suddenly we're doing uh, more virtual loads. Um, Coho, you know, did, did see increased business during that time as people migrated to more online channels. Um, at, the, at the same time, um, signups for accounts at, at every institution became pretty much um, almost all anonymous for a little while. And at, at Coho, that's something that we have always had to do with the fact that we're not seeing those people. Um, but there's, there's some uh, companies that may, you know, maybe weren't as ready for that, uh, moving to perhaps 100% virtual. There's other stuff that would normally be associated with money laundering, like, like cash transactions, that became much less commonplace. So to the extent that if someone were depositing a lot of cash, for me, that would stick out more in this climate, um, particularly when restaurants were closed because they're, they're, they're not taking a lot of cash payments. So th I think it became a lot easier to ask where, um, where the cash was coming from. Um, fraudsters in both Canada and the United States have really taken advantage of government benefits. Um, and that's something you, you will see a lot of articles about if, if you, uh, if you read, um, essentially what they did uh, was take over uh, people's identity uh, for the purpose of enrolling in government benefits um, or, or stole those benefits in, in some form. That, that was a Canada problem and a United States problem. Um, there, there's just a, a lot of government money flowing to individuals that you maybe wouldn't have gotten that before. Um, and a lot of people signing up to this stuff for the first time and criminals saw an opportunity there and, and, and really seized on it. So we all had to redouble our efforts to catch that. And um, sometimes it, 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 was, it was tough because like, like I said before, you see people signing up virtually for the first time, suddenly getting government benefits. They look like a fraudster, but maybe they're not. So we're, we're all trying to do the right thing to catch the fraudsters. And, protect the real people, but not create a bad experience for those real people who are, who need this money. And so, yeah, so you that, touch, oh, sorry, please go ahead. And there's, there's a sympathetic lens to it too. I, I'm, it, it is tough times for a lot of people and we, we want to be there for people and we don't want to be inconveniencing them at that time. But at the same time, uh, fraud ring took advantage of that too attempting to play on sympathies um, and saying, you know, why, why are you holding these funds, even though they're fraud, um, by portraying themselves in an, as an innocent victim um, and, and, you know, therefore kind of ruining it for other people. So something I get in the same vein is this policy that you mentioned is that 
there was an article written last year, I believe, in the Financial Post. Um, and, and effectively, the, the crux of it was that Canada, uh, among Western liberal democracies, has particularly weak anti-money laundering laws. And I believe the estimate was uh, anywhere for between $50 billion and $130 billion had been laundered through Canadian uh, firms, companies, both domestically and internationally in 2018. Uh, and, and so for uh, so for the readers or listeners or whoever who are not so familiar with Canadian anti-money laundering, anti-money laundering law, sorry, that's a mouthful. Uh, I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit on what some of these weaknesses are. Yeah, you'll get different opinions on what the weaknesses are. I, I've definitely observed that um, both fraud and money laundering can, can be based in the in Canada. Um, but working with schemes that are in the United States, but almost almost in Canada uh, for protection. Um, my take on Canada versus some other countries is um, financial institutions work relatively well together in Canada, partly maybe due to proximity. Um, I'd say they don't work directly with law enforcement as well as they do in you know, say the United States, uh, for example. Um, and that that's that's I, I think partly due to the way that the um, like data is shared. Like like I said before, local law enforcement in the United States has more access to this information to fight uh, a, a money laundering, whereas in Canada it's it's more of a central thing. Um, a big thing that is an issue in Canada is um, punishments. Um, people who are caught for for things like fraud in Canada can get away with a, a relatively light punishment. I've, I've, I've seen them, I've seen them get away with it and then still get to keep the money. Um, I've, I've had my teams been involved in, in past places I've worked actually catching fraudsters in branches. Um, and then, and then hearing a couple, a, a couple months later that they were out on parole and they'd like left the country, um, things like that. So, I think it makes Canada a little bit of a safe haven for operating these schemes, knowing that even if they get caught, um, that the punishment is going to be um, relatively light. Um, at the same time, there there hasn't been as as much funding for like central law enforcement. Um, for example, I, I believe the RCMP Financial Crime Unit was disbanded last year. Um, or, or like largely had, had their funding reduced, um, pushing out to other other law enforcement schemes. Um, whereas like in, in other countries, that just wouldn't be the case. They, they would they would fund that relatively heavily for investigation. Um, and and we also we just we just have a we have a very diverse um, country as well. And and I think I think people hide behind that sometimes. Um, you know, there's a there's a lot of legitimate use there but they um you know people take advantage to blend in and, and kind of fly under the radar yeah so as you mentioned um sort of the government disbanding one of their sort of like fraud departments or bodies who look after that um has the responsibility kind of fallen more onto the companies um like businesses like coho to sort of manage their own you know, fraud and money laundering practices. And kind of additionally, this might be sort of like a question, like, you know, from the eyes of the law, is that like not kind of, whose responsibility is it? Is it not like vigilante justice to sort of like have a company 
um, kind of deal with, say, a criminal from end to end um, versus, you know, the, the government's role in that? I, I think it's all of our responsibility. Um, I, I, I think there's been times when legislation in Canada has lagged behind that of other countries um, for, for everything like everything from how you identify people all the way through to what you should report on. Um, I, I think it's maybe been not as much of a, a legislative priority, um, but I, I think the onus is on us all as, as well to take, take these things seriously. And, and it's, 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 it's easy to turn a blind eye maybe when it's not costing you money or, or it's not obvious, but it, it, it is on, it, it is on all of us to, um, you know, crack down on this dirty money and um, make sure that as a financial sector, we're not, um, we're not benefiting from it, so. Yeah, yeah, so. Right, so. Um, oh yeah, Custom, yeah. you can go ahead. So, you briefly mentioned um, stories where you had, uh, it sounds like you had physically caught these fraudsters in branches of banks and uh, in instances like that. But could you elaborate maybe on some of the more um, exciting or, yeah, just general notable experiences or memories that you have of dealing with fraudsters or money launderers? Yeah, there's there's been a lot of of those. One that one that I wouldn't call exciting, but that. Um, I was I was happy to contribute to in the past was an example where we um, saw indications of human trafficking um, based on the the way the money was flowing, and we were we were able to contribute that information to law enforcement and um, later saw that results in in arrests and real people actually helped as a result of our efforts and there there's been there's been um, larger efforts in the industry to coordinate on, on things like that, uh, led by some um, very passionate individuals in, in the AML industry um, who, have, who have done that on, on a grander scale. And I'm, I'm really happy to see institutions and law enforcement cooperating uh, like that to, to help um, real people. Um, and then uh, there are a number of others that I've been happy to help on. We're, we're on things like elder abuse too, where um, we saw indications that um, somebody was you know, stealing from the elderly and, and, and then not, not only committing that financial crime in the form of fraud, but then also laundering the funds. And uh, again, there, we were able to intervene multiple times, um, look at the funds flow, uh, report that to law enforcement, and it, it actually help real um, senior citizens who are being taken advantage of uh, there. And that, that's, that's a very gratifying thing that like there, there's the numbers of fraud and the, and the case counts and what's going on in Canada. But I, I think we need to remind ourselves that these things often actually usually have real victims. Um, and it can, be, it can be you or me having my, our identity stolen to open a credit card. It can be a victim of human trafficking. It can be a senior citizen having their money stolen. Um, and that by strengthening our controls on this stuff, um, it, you, you, you help real people. And that's something I get really passionate about. Yeah. See, I guess what's surprising to me is that, you know, I think when most people think of anti-money laundering and fraud, it, it, it's a very uh, statistical matter. 
You know, it's yeah. very, very much you, you can get bogged down by the numbers and you forget that behind all of those are individuals who are in fact suffering. And so I, I guess my question is for you then, is that, would you say that for your work, is that one of the main motivations behind it? Is that one of the main uh, reasons, I guess, that, that you continue to pursue the work that you do? Um, that is, that is a, a big reason why I pursue the work that I do. Um, also, many times when these individuals are conducting fraud or you know, laundering money, it, it's, it's leading to other things down the line, like terrorist financing, for example, um, like, a, like, like other things that are, are bigger societal problems. So it, it's, it's not just about the financial loss. Uh, you you got to think about where that money is going as well. And that, that's, I mean, sometimes it's, it's just someone um, evading taxes. And, and I know people don't get as passionate about that. Um, but when it's going to things like terrorist financing or, or terrorist organizations, um, that that's a really important thing for us to combat. Mm. And um, very often with, with fraud that's taking place in Canada, that's what's happening. All right. Um, Jenny, do you have any more? Would you like to ask the last question? Yeah, I can ask. Um, yeah, so you have a very, you have a pretty diverse background just from working at different firms. Um, so but just to give our listeners a bit more background, um, before Coho, you were, at the, you were the head of fraud at Capital One and also, you know, leading the fraud and AML team at Meridian Credit Union. So Coho as a startup, you know, there's a very, um, you know, the product offering is just one prepaid account um, and the user pool is, um, I'd say smaller than uh, Capital One and the Meridian Credit Union uh, user base. So my question is around the difference in sizes and product offerings. Does that uh, affect how you approach kind of risk management and um, your AML practices in the sense that like, um, first of all, scale um, and also between different products that you offer? Uh, absolutely. Um... First things first, um, there, there's a number of ways that people normally commit fraud or launder money that are not, not elements of risk at Coho today. Uh, we, don't, we don't accept cash deposits yet. We don't accept checks. We don't have things like international wire transfers. Um, we, don't, we don't have branches where, where people can make deposits. And we don't have businesses too. And when you're, when you're, I've dealt with businesses at places I've worked in the past. And um, when, you're, when you're dealing with that, you, you need to look at who, who owns the business, where the money's coming from for the business and do some really complex enhanced due diligence. So to a large extent, the risks that we have at Coho are, are, are simplified. Um, that said, we're also hundred percent virtual. So hundred um, percent anonymous. So we've had to be, um, very leading edge at finding ways to allow people to open Coho accounts, but making sure that they're who they say they are. And so that that's that's really driven us to jump on regulatory changes around things like photo ID as quickly as they became available. Um, because of our scale, we're we're not a ten thousand employee bank at this point. We're we're a much smaller institution. We have to be creative and nimble about the controls that we're coming up with. And so 
because of our scale, we, we have to do that. But because we're new, we also have the opportunity to build things for the first time without, without legacy systems hanging over our necks. So uh, we've really pursued um, new technologies where we can, um, you know, risk models, working with, working with the leading vendors and have been able to, I think, move quickly to market with those things. Um, again, knowing that today we have simplified risk, but in the future, we're, we're going to have much more. That's great. And uh, sorry, I, I said earlier that was our last question, but we actually had one more. And this is with, with the series, what we always try to do is related maybe a little bit more to the student body as those yeah. that comprises the majority of our viewer base and reader base. So for those students who would be interested in working in risk management and to pursue careers similar to what you have done, what skills would you recommend that they work on? Soft, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 please. Yeah, my, my question was done. I, I actually started my career in marketing analytics. And uh, for, for anybody looking to get into risk, I actually recommend you do a stint in um, like a marketing or product role. And, and for anyone looking to get into marketing or product, I recommend you do a stint in risk because it's really good to bring that balanced perspective to the business. Um, that said, for risk and anyone who wants to get into a, a leadership capacity and fraud, um, money laundering detection, credit risk, you do want to have a strong background in analytics. Uh, you, you need to be comfortable with data. Um, and and that's, that's first off, I'm just being really good at Excel, but also um, if, if, if you don't know SQL today, um, lots of ways to learn it for free online. Um, go online, work through the modules, um, learn SQL as best you can. Um, increasingly, I do find people getting into Python as well. And that, that's, that's a really good skill for um, some of the things that we're, we're trying to do in the future. Um, it, it, is a, it can be a very technical profession, but also, also a very lucrative profession if you're bringing those technical skills. Um, on a more designation certification perspective, if, if you're going into AML, the CAM certification through ACAMS has, has pretty much become the industry standard at this point. Um, within fraud, there's the CFE, uh, Certified Fraud Examiner. Usually people with a fraud operations background get into that stuff. I, my own opinion is you can learn that stuff through experience. Um, and then, and then I, I, I almost find people who do the CFA bring bring a, like a set of well-rounded analytical skills to any problem. So it's not just about having looked at a thousand fraud cases in the past. It's about being able to look at a set of information quickly, find the trends, um, you know, like all, all the credit risk is in this pocket, all the fraud risk is in this pocket, and then uh, come up with insights that you can distill quickly. And so that's just anything you can do to build up your analytical capacity at, at this point. Um, is, is what I would recommend it uh, for that. Well, uh, to be respectful of your time, I, I think uh, I think we've gotten through everything that we needed to in, in due course. So thank you very much, Michael, for joining us and for sharing your your knowledge and uh, insights with us. We really appreciate it. And I, I think I, I've personally learned quite a lot as I'm not someone who is particularly versed uh, in the topic. So yeah, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris and Jennifer. It's my pleasure.
thanks for tuning in to this episode of Tech Talks. We'll see you in the next one.